following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Please turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. If you're using one of the Bibles there in the seat in front of you, that's page number 948. We're going to be taking a little break from our study of Galatians over the next uh, few weeks. It's not perfect timing. I wish it was a little different, but uh, Jamie and I are going to be out of town uh, the next couple of Sundays, and so this is my last Sunday that I have before I leave, and there's something I really wanted to address with you all before I go, and so I thought I would do so. Got some uh, directions going over here. That's great. If you're there, let's look at Romans chapter 13, verse 1. We're going to read through verse 7, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Let's pray. Father, the, uh, the reality of our situation in life is, is very often we find ourselves having to make decisions about things that we don't feel adequately prepared to make. We, we have questions and we have uncertainty and, and waters are muddied to us and we just don't know how to proceed. And we know that in those moments we should turn to you and we should lean on you and on your wisdom to carry us through those times, but the fact of the matter is often we do not do that. And even sometimes when we do, we still seemingly can't see the way. And so I pray, Lord, that as we work through this issue this morning, as we think about what's going on here in our country around us, in our world around us, that we will not think like Republicans or will not think like Democrats, that in reality we won't even think like Americans, but we will think like believers, that we will allow the scriptures and your desires to govern how we operate, how we think, how we talk, the decisions we make, that we will seek to honor you in every single aspect of everything we do in this life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it was Sunday, October 19th, 2008. I began my sermon that morning by saying the following words, quote, I don't normally tell you what the title of the sermon is, but I will tell you today I've titled today's message, The Christian, the Donkey, and the Elephant. I then went on to observe that that sounded more like the beginning of a joke than it did of a sermon, as if those three would walk into a bar and something would happen to them. 
The context of that sermon, as most of you should recall, was the election or the campaign that was going on between then-Senator Barack Obama and Senator John McCain. As that election season had unfolded, I was hearing Christians saying a lot of uh, really terrible things, terrible fears, terrible accusations, terrible assertions. And it felt to me at the time that I needed to address our hearts in order to remind us that our hope is not in a person, humanly speaking, that it is not in a party, that it is not in a platform, that it is not in uh, policies, it's not in politics, any other P's you want to throw on that list. Our hope must be and should be in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. And it's really hard to believe now, thinking back, that was eight years ago that I preached that sermon. There's very few of you, it seems like, who were probably here eight years ago to hear that. But it was one of those sermons that even though it was so long ago, I still hear brought up from time to time as people think about those things. That sermon was the first, and I believe up to this point, the only time I have specifically addressed the issue of politics in the totality of one of my sermons. Well, here we are today, almost exactly, four days off, exactly eight years after preaching that first sermon, and this will be the second time that I dedicate the totality of one of my sermons to the issue of politics, and as you saw in your bulletin, I've titled this sermon, The Christian, the Donkey, the Elephant, dot, 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 and the Impossible Choice. Now, before I begin, let me say two things. Uh, first, in the spirit of full disclosure, I am related to one of the candidates. In fact, uh, he was at my house last night. Wait, what? I didn't go. There we go. This is my son. I don't know what his full platform is, but he's saying to me that he's going to make Halloween great again and that his candy bag will be huge. All right, that's that. Sorry, I had to throw that one in there. Second, and more seriously, let me make something very clear here from the very outset, that everything I'm about to say from this point on represents my own thoughts, my own study, my own musings, research, meditations, etc. They in no way represent the official position of Cornerstone Bible Church, nor of any of my fellow elders. I did not run this past them for their approval, so if you have any issue with anything I'm about to say, if you dislike any component of it, you have one person and one person only to come talk to and that's me. All right, is that clear? I know I'm not alone when I say that uh, this year's presidential election season has been, to put it um, underwhelmingly stated, disappointing. I am disappointed by both of the two major parties. I am disappointed by both of the two main candidates. I am disappointed by the tone of this particular campaign season on both sides. I am disappointed by many of the policies and positions being advocated by one side or the other. And above all, I'm disappointed that I feel like I'm in a position that no matter what decision I make, I am going to be in some way, shape, or form uh, regretful of that decision. For the first time in my life, there have been points along the way through this season where I would have labeled myself or have labeled myself as an undecided voter. And I've never been in that position before. In the past, I've never struggled figuring out who I was going to vote for for president and really for any other office as well. It doesn't mean I've necessarily loved every last thing about every person that has been uh, up for election or who I have voted for. It just simply means that whatever things I didn't care for about those particular candidates did not rise to such a level that it gave me any kind of lengthy pause in trying to figure out 
what I should or should not do in a given situation. Uh, this year, though, for me personally, I haven't felt that lack luxury. In fact, I feel like I've done nothing but pause <laughs> along the way. It seems like as soon as I sort of lean one direction, something happens. It causes me to lean another direction, and then something happens again. causes me to lean the other direction. I feel like I'm a wave of the sea tossed about one direction and then the next with that whatever comes along next, and I keep having to re-examine what I should do. And based on the conversations that I've had with other people, some of, uh, of whom are in this room, based on conversations I've had with people outside of this room, uh, based on conversations I've overheard, of things I've read online, of news I have watched, it seems to me that there may, there may be many, many more people out there who feel the same way I do. And so over the past several weeks, I have been wrestling with questions. These are not political questions that I've been wrestling with. These are not even personal preference questions that I've been wrestling with. These are theological questions, biblical questions. I've been trying to find some kind of guidance that isn't rooted in my own opinions, that isn't rooted in my own views, that isn't rooted in my own emotions. They're not rooted in my own fears or any other thing but are rooted solely in God's Word. And I would suggest to you this morning that regardless of whether or not you know exactly who you're going to vote for because there's somebody who perfectly uh, exemplifies all the things you stand for, or whether you, like me, are still trying to figure it out along the way as you're working through all of the things that seem to come along day by day, I would argue that for us as Christians, our desire should be to not make up our minds based on emotions, opinions, fears, even our own political views, but rather to make up our minds, to make our decision based to the best of our ability on God's word. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm just going to walk us through the very questions that I've been asking myself over the past several weeks. My goal, and be very clear on this here at the beginning as well, my goal is not to convince you to vote for any particular candidate. My goal is not to change anyone's mind, minus perhaps on one particular point, which we'll get to in a minute. My goal is to present a biblical framework that will hopefully give you something to think about and pray about over these final two and a half weeks of this election season, and that will hopefully then guide you as you cast whatever vote you cast. That is my goal. For me, I had to begin by asking a question that I already knew the answer to, but needed to be reminded of just because there are some basic and foundational truths here that will undergird everything else we look at this morning. And the first question I asked was, where does our citizenship truly lie? Where does our citizenship truly lie? In Augustine's famous work, The City of God, Augustine makes the case that every believer has a dual citizenship. On the one hand, we are citizens of an earthly kingdom of some sort. And as citizens of an earthly kingdom, we have certain responsibilities to that kingdom. You see this repeatedly throughout Scripture, that we have a responsibility to uh, submit, to obey government, to respect and pray for our leaders. We'll see some aspects of this here in more detail in a moment. My point is simply that we cannot deny that we are part of an earthly kingdom. In fact, God commands us to recognize that truth and live accordingly. But on the other hand, we as believers, and this is unique to us as believers, 
we are also citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, we have certain responsibilities to that kingdom as well. This is what I mean when I say we have dual citizenship. And the reality is, is we cannot confuse or conflate these two kingdoms. I've said this in the past. I will say it again today. In fact, I said it eight years ago in that other sermon. America does not equal heaven. I hope you understand that. America does not equal heaven. God is not sitting on his throne waiting to see what is going to happen in this election as if that will have some impact on what he does next. Uh, Despite anything you may have thought to the contrary in the past, America is not the center of God's plan for this world. Jesus is. He's the center of God's plan for this world. God doesn't need our country, but he may choose to use it uh, in his own grace if that is his choice to do so, and we certainly hope it would be. That means that we need to take all of the earthly things that happen in this earthly kingdom around us with a grain of salt, because in the end, only one of these two kingdoms will last forever. You know, that was Augustine's issue as he's writing the city of God, as he's writing that work, Rome has fallen. He's grown up in the Roman system. Rome has ruled the world. Everything about his worldview and his understanding of life is rooted in Rome, and now Rome has fallen. What must he do? How should he proceed? How should Christians proceed? And his argument was that regardless of what changes around us, Christ remains the same. And this is why the New Testament regularly refers to believers as pilgrims, as exiles, as sojourners. These terms picture us as travelers who are merely passing through one country on our way to another. For the time being, as travelers who are, as the old song says, just a passing through, we find ourselves in this country. But this is not our true and final country. Our true and final country is yet to come. While I'm in this country, I should help where I can and do what I can, but in the end, I should not fear. I shouldn't get too settled here. I shouldn't forget that my true country is not affected by what happens in this country. And just understanding this basic concept that I would say most of us know, we understand it, we agree with it and get it, just reminding ourselves of that basic concept puts everything else we look at this morning in its proper perspective, particularly my next question. Because if I'm just an exile, if I'm just a traveler passing through this country for a short time while I wait for my entrance into my true and final country, then my next question is, what then is my responsibility to this earthly country of which I am currently a part? What's my responsibility? While I'm here, what do I what do I do? Well, normally when this question is asked, whoever attempts to answer it will turn to a passage like Romans 13, which is why I went there this morning. And the answer that's given to that question is that we should be submissive. If you look at the text here behind me, this is clearly what you see Paul saying here in verse 1. He says, we should be subject to the governing authorities. And to be subject means to obey, to submit to, to rank yourself under. And note the reason why that follows it here. He says there is, because there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. The governing authorities uh, over us have been appointed by no less than God 
himself. And as appointees of God, they have certain responsibilities. Namely, as you see here in verse 3, they are to do and promote good. If you do what's good, you're going to receive his approval, Paul says. Again, you see it in verse 4, that the governing authority is supposed to be God's servant for the good of the governed. Not only is the governing authority supposed to do and promote good, but it's also supposed to prevent evil and protect those in its care. Back to verse 3, he says, rulers are supposed to be a terror. Not to those who do good, though, but to those who do evil. If you go to verse 4, they are to strike fear in wrongdoers. They are appointed by God to act as avengers of evil. Therefore, he says, because this is what government is, it's appointed by God and what it's supposed to do, what are we, what's our responsibility? Well, we are supposed to be in subjection, obeying them, uh, showing respect, pay your taxes, honor the ones whom God says to honor as servants of God himself. In other words, we should be model citizens, even lifting our leaders before the Lord in prayer, as Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So this is the normal answer that's given when people say, what is my responsibility to this earthly country of which I am currently a part? And while I certainly agree with that answer, um, I have to point out to you that there is one unique component of this that applies to us in a way that did not apply to the Apostle Paul or to the Romans or anyone else in the New Testament for that matter, and for the majority of people throughout human history, and I can sum it up in a single word, it's the word democracy. What is unique to us is that in our system, we are both the citizen and the ruler. It's a strange setup. According to our Constitution, our government exists by the will of the people. To make that work, practically speaking, they instituted a process of elections whereby the people get to choose their own leaders at all the levels of government. That means that in the American system, unlike the Roman system, we the people are, in the end, the very authority that God put in place. Getting to the right spot here. There. Very authority that God put in place. We are the ones that have been instituted by God. Now, Obviously, we exercise our governing authority through electing representatives who are supposed to carry out the will of the people, and therein does lie the uniqueness of our system. We are both citizens then who follow the leaders we elect, and we are also the authority who elects the leaders we follow. It's a weird mix of things that happen all at one time. And the first half of that, our role as citizens, is something I think that's pretty well understood by most believers. I just addressed it a moment ago. We get it. As citizens following our leaders, we should submit, we should respect, and we should pray. But the second half of that, our role as authorities, as leaders, as rulers within this temporary nation of which we're a part, has largely been ignored by Christians and by the church. And through these weeks of thinking and asking all these questions, this has become very clear to me and has convicted me and actually changed the way that I view my role within this country of which I am a part, uh, or at least for the time being. Because the fact of the matter is, if you, like me, are a United States citizen, 18 years old or older, you are a God-appointed ruler of this nation in which you live. And let that thought sink into you for just a moment that you're a ruler. 
you know, just look back at verses 1 and 2 in Romans 13 here and apply to yourself and consider for yourself what that means here. It means that your governing authority isn't actually given to you by the U.S. Constitution. It's given to you by God. That God himself has chosen us for this task, that we are literally God's representatives in this country we call America. And folks, I would, I would say that changes things. It means that my responsibility to this earthly country of which I am a part is not just to be a good citizen. It is that, but it's not just that. It's to be a good ruler as well. That I have to wear both hats and fulfill my God-given responsibilities in both realms. Now, this leads me to my next and final two questions that I want to ask and answer for you this morning. Uh, But... I want to pause as I do that and just provide an immediate application of this point right here. And this, by the way, happens to be that one area where I am hoping to change perhaps some of your minds. Maybe there's no one in here who this will affect, and that's the case, that's fine. But in case you're here, let me just make a comment. Over the past months, I have heard more than one believer say to me that because of this or because of that, because of the people involved or the positions involved, that they have chosen to not vote in this upcoming election. Or that they are going to vote, but they're not just going to vote for this one particular office or that office or whatever the case may be. And while I certainly understand why you feel that way, believe me, I get your your concerns and your beliefs, I would respectfully say to you that choosing to not vote is a willful dereliction of your duty as a leader before God and is actually, therefore, a form of disobedience. Now, clearly I'm saying this based on the framework or the assertion I've made up to this point that you in the American system, which is, again, very unique, have a responsibility as a ruler before God. If you reject that assertion, then... I guess you can reject everything else I'm about to say, but if you will accept it, and I think you should, then I think it puts a new significance on uh, the act of voting itself. It causes you to view your vote as your God-appointed means of exercising your God-given authority within this system of which we're a part. Voting then becomes neither just an act of personal preference or even a civic duty, It becomes an act of obedience and stewardship before the Lord. It is the means by which you wield your authority. If God has made you a leader in the home, you don't get to just take a pass on leading in the home because you don't like your choices. If you are a parent, you don't get a pass on leading in parenting just because you don't care for what is before you to have to decide upon. You say, Stacey, I... I get that, I understand that, but when it comes to to this area, I have a real conscience issue with what's going on. I really don't like this, or I don't like that person, or whatever the case may be. And again, I say to you with all sympathy, I get it. I really do get it. But I would also remind us as leaders in home, in family, in business, in church, We don't get to take a pass just because we don't like the options before us. Because in those cases, not making a decision is the decision, and it's always the wrong one. When you're a leader, you don't have the luxury of being able to pass the buck. You have to make a call. You sometimes have to, in faith, do the best you can with what you have in the moment and trust God to work in all the ways that you can't see at the time. So when God calls us to be a leader in a given area, he expects that we fulfill that duty no matter what, And I believe that in America, we the people are the leaders that God has appointed 
for this time and place. And so if you have chosen not to vote on election day, either completely or just for a particular office, I challenge you as your friend and as your pastor to reconsider that choice. I think it is you passing the buck, not intentionally. I don't think you're doing it with like any negative intent. I'm not calling you out in that sense. But I think it's passing the buck on your duty before the Lord as a ruler here in this nation of which you are temporarily a part. And I want you to reconsider. Now, having said all of that, for me, seeing my responsibility to my earthly country in this way changes the way that I'm looking at this election. It hasn't made it any easier. I'm going to be the first to say that. It hasn't made it any easier at all, but it has made it different because now I'm not trying to make my decision in light of my politics or my preferences, but I'm trying to do it in light of being a good ruler before the Lord. Well, remember, what is a ruler supposed to do? Well, we saw it just a moment ago here in Romans 13. On the one hand, as appointees of God himself, we are, as you see in verse 3, supposed to do and promote good. That's what rulers are supposed to do. That's why God puts them in authority. It's their intended role to do, promote good, to, to be God's servant for the good of the governed. And as I think about that for a moment, I see how Christ-like that is because Christ is the ruler, the king. And what does he do? Philippians 2, he empties himself for the good of those he governs, for the good of his people. And so as a human ruler in a human system, I'm supposed to be God's servant for the good of those around me. And then along with that, and just as important as that, I am supposed to prevent evil and protect those I serve. Verse 3, I should through my vote be a terror to bad conduct. Verse 4, I should through my vote strike fear in wrongdoers. I need to prevent evil and protect those whom I serve. These are my responsibilities as a God-appointed ruler in this earthly country of which I am now a part. These are two general biblical categories in which I need to think. And so based on that, here are my next and final two questions, and they go together. They cannot be separated. I'll say more about that in a moment. Here they are. How can I do and promote good for my family, for my fellow believers, and for society at large, and at the same time, how can I prevent evil and protect my family, my fellow believers, and society at large? Now, let me just briefly point out two things before I try to walk you through that a little bit. Notice first that I put those two components on equal footing. They are not an either-or. They can't be. The choice before you as a leader in this respect is never... Should I either do good or, or prevent evil? <laughs> Should I either promote good or protect those I love? It is a both and. They have to go together. They have to stay together as best as you can in each and every decision you make. More on that in a moment. Second, notice that I included three categories of people seemingly out of the blue, right? I mentioned family and fellow believers and society at large, and I haven't said word one about that yet. So, where did they come from? More on that in a moment. For the time being, just recognize that I would argue that, that this is our task as we go to the polls here in a couple of weeks, as believers, not as 
not as citizens per se, just as believers, to figure out how we can use each and every vote we're given for each and every item on the ballot to do and promote good and to prevent evil and protect all of these groups that I have named to the best of our ability. And boy, I wish that at this point I could give you one simple, easy answer, right? For this is how you do it right here. This is the one thing you need to do. And if you've got this right, you'll get everything else right. I wish more than I can say that I could uh, tell you that, but I can't. And this is where I have to recognize that each of us, while sincerely doing our best to answer those two questions well, may come to different conclusions as to how we should answer them. You know, I wish there was a flow chart, right? If, if this, then that, then if this, then that, if, like, or like a checklist that would just, if, as long as you can mark all the boxes, you're good to go, but there just isn't. So all I can do for you, I think, is to publicly express some of my own personal musings as I am wrestling through this on my own, not to tell you what to do, just to to give you an example of how it can be done. I'm not even sure it's the only way it could be done. I'm just giving you one way that I'm doing it, and then maybe you can see that and think through that, and then it'll help you a little bit, even if it doesn't exactly clear up everything you should or you might have a question about. But for me, as I started thinking through what the, uh, how I should do this, the first thing I did was think through what is the real state of, of our country right now? Like You can't make a good decision without having to stop and just really think through a scenario in reality. And that means sometimes not listening to the pundits and not listening to the news and not listening to everything else, but, but sincerely just trying to understand. And for me, generally, as I look around, I see that sin is both rampant and militantly expanding in our country. And I'll be very clear at this point, politics is never going to be the answer to sin. Is this clear? You cannot vote sin out of office. You cannot solve it through a political party. Jesus is neither a Republican nor a Democrat nor an Independent nor anything else. So as I say these things here, I'm not in any way attempting to communicate that somehow we can eradicate sin or, or stop sin by our choice. I know that's not the case. Yet at the same time, I recognize that there are things I can do to try to promote righteousness and to try to prevent unrighteousness. I have some ability, whether that's in a very limited way or in a very broad way, I can do my best and should do my best to, to, to fight against those things. And so as I look around, I see the whole litany of sins that Paul talks about in Romans 1 expanding every turn around us. I even see the very sentiment that Paul describes in Romans 1.32 becoming the spirit of our day when he says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And you could like run now, you know, take that list and run it through a million different areas of our life. I, I ran, I'll run it through two just as an example. There, there are more I specifically run that through the issue of abortion, and I look around us, and I realize that unborn children are in the greatest danger they have ever been in, probably in the history of humanity. And this is not just true at the presidential level. It's also true at the congressional and judicial level. In addition, I see our very freedom of religion is under assault. And let's be honest about this. We, we see that as Americans, and because that's our tradition and we're used to it, we get worked up. But you do recognize that a freedom of religion is not a biblical concept. 
Nowhere in Scripture are we promised the freedom to practice our religion. In fact, for the vast majority of believers who have lived throughout human history, they practice their faith in the teeth of antagonism and in the teeth of persecution, and they paid for it. So I'm not suggesting that this is like the, the end all of every decision that we have to make in this particular election cycle. And yet, that said, I don't think it's something that should be ignored either. That we shouldn't just clo blindly close our eyes and just pretend that what's going on around us isn't going on. Folks, listen to this very carefully. I've, I've insinuated it before, but I will say it bluntly today. Unless something changes, the days where we can freely call sin, sin, and proclaim truth without any fear of repercussion is coming to an end. You can disagree with me on that, and I hope you're right and I'm wrong, but that's how I see it. And so you, you can just look around, just... Just look around, diagnose, where are we? What's happening? What's going on? What are the, the things I need to be thinking on? This is just a sampling of how I see things going today. And because then for me, I have a generally pessimistic view of these things, I feel like I'm being forced into a hard choice. You know, if I use an analogy, it's not a great one. I acknowledge that up front, but it just will help you think through it. As an analogy, if I go to the doctor for a checkup, I'm healthy, and he says, hey, look, you know, you should um, either eat better or exercise more. Well, that's a great choice, right? I should do both, actually. That's an easy one because both are positive and both will have a good effect on me. But it's because I'm healthy. If I go in and he says, listen, I'm sorry you have cancer. You either have to have an amputation or, or chemotherapy. <laughs> that's a different set of choices. That's a different set of choices because my diagnosis is different. Is it not the same scenario? Now, I'll be at first to, the, to acknowledge that that analogy falls short in many respects, but hopefully you get the idea. You have to make decisions based on where you think things are at. And, and, and I can't even begin to think how many nights I have lay in bed awake, agonizing over decisions I should make for my family or for our church, because sometimes you just don't like what you have to decide. <laughs> you don't like the choices that are in front of you. But as a leader, a decision has to be made. And for me, when I'm in those situations, and I think there's biblical precedent for this, particularly as leaders, I think one of the ways that we walk through that or work through that is to think through how our decision will impact those we lead. And so in the case of our election here, back to that, I'm thinking through three groups of people. One, I'm thinking as a husband and a father, that I have a God-given responsibility to lead my family to care for my children. And quite frankly, and this kind of sounds weird because I'm only 38, but I'm even thinking about my grandchildren. Like how, what, how will the decision I make today affect them down the road? What, 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 am I, what do I need to be thinking about for them? You know, uh, I have a direct responsibility as their father to love them and protect them and care for them the best I can. So Given my diagnosis, given my concerns, how can I best use my vote to do and promote good for them and to prevent evil and protect them down the road? Second, I'm looking at my fellow believers. Obviously, as a pastor, I am directly responsible for your souls. I will give an account. And so for me in this election season, I'm thinking about you. And I don't mean that to sound weird or kind of hokey. I mean it with all sincerity how, how do I answer for you? What decision can I make? What, how should I use my vote, given my diagnosis, given my concerns, that will best do and promote good for you and for believers around the country, around the world, and at the same time, 
prevent evil and protect you. And then finally, I am thinking about society at large. Look, I get it. The unbelievers around us are blind. They're blind. They're lost in their sins. They are promoting and celebrating the very sin that will lead to their destruction, if not in this world, then in the next. I understand that. So while my vote can't save them and it can't take the blinders off of their eyes, how can I use my vote to do and promote the most good I can even for them and to work against the very evils that are destroying them even though they can't see it and don't know it? Those are the questions I'm asking. And so, as a leader, as you and I cast our votes on November 8th, I believe that our responsibility before God is to do and promote good and at the same time prevent evil and protect all of these groups. And to do that, I think we have to diagnose our situation and then lay aside our own personal, emotional, (laughs) fearful preferences sometimes and think about our families, our fellow believers, and society at large. Now, as you can already see, that doesn't tell you how to vote. In fact, it might have just made things a little harder. For some of you, I I, I don't know where you're at. I've argued that every believer has a God-given responsibility to use the authority of his or her vote to promote and do good and to prevent evil and protect those around us. But I am recognizing that this will play out differently for different ones of us in this room as we work through that grid. Some of you are going to look at the two main candidates that are available for us to choose from, and you're going to go, can't do it. (laughs) Can't do it. Uh, Who are my other options? And there are other options out there. Some of you are even going to say, I can't vote for anyone who's on any ballot anywhere. I'm going to write in a name. You can vote for Chris. He's he's accepting nominations, all right? (laughs) Still others of you are going to view a vote for anyone other than one of the main two candidates as throwing your vote away. And so therefore, even though you may not like either of the two main people, you're going to vote for one of them. As I said at the beginning, my goal is not to convince you to do one or the other or anything. I'm not trying to tell you to vote for any person. I'm not trying to change anyone's mind with the exception of anyone in here who had decided to not vote because they don't like their choices. I don't think you have that right. My goal has been to present a biblical framework that will hopefully give you something to think and pray about over these final two and a half weeks and that will help give you some sense of a guide as you walk into the voting booth that isn't just purely based on your emotions or your fears or your political views or affiliations. I don't want you voting based on any of those things. Those things, they shift. They move. I want you voting based on what you see in God's word. And let me add, while I'm at this point, while I have focused on the presidency, uh, remember that this applies to all of our congressional votes, as well as our votes for state and local offices, even ballot initiatives. There's a lot at stake. There always is. There's always a lot at stake. And the same principles, the same questions will apply to all of those choices as well. In each and every case, as you go to the polls, the question that you have to answer is, with each decision How do I do and promote as much good as I can for these groups? How do I prevent evil and protect as best I can these particular groups? Look, I'm not naive. (laughs) I know I'm only one vote. It's like, you spent a lot of time working on one vote. Yeah, I did. Um, I know that my one vote's not going to change this or that. It's not dependent on me. I also know that when I wake up on, on Wednesday, November 9th, Whoever the president is doesn't change who my king is. Um, This is still just my temporary country. 
And as such, whoever occupies the Oval Office or whoever controls Congress should never cause me to fear or really even to rejoice. <laughs> Nor should I get too settled here and put too much stock in what happens in Washington or Richmond or at City Hall. I need to remember that my true country is not affected by whatever happens here. That our God, he's in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. He always gives his children bread. Everything works together for the good of those who love him. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. His kingdom never fails. That every leader is appointed by his hand and answers to him. That I am a dual citizen. And while I am passing through this country, I want to do good and prevent evil to the best of my ability as a good steward of the responsibility given to me by God. But that my true citizenship is not of this world. It is not of this world. My true king is sovereign over all. Over all. And it is in him, in him, not in politics and not in a party that I trust. Will you bow your heads? Greg, will you come up and lead us in prayer for wisdom in this election season?